Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a live killer urban gorilla. I gotta be a rough nag. Free the black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for free the black Panthers. If up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black on black power moves. You tell a lie, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters, that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday. I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. If up the Black Police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. If up the Black Police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here in the bill head up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black woman and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish, that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. Barack upped up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no, no other Black Panther Party, we're not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police department to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prison. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous service unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation.
I thank the gentleman. Uh, it is clear that there is a new day on the Committee of Ed and Labor. And that committee, led by Chairman Scott, has shown itself to be the People's Committee. Uh, my name is Karen Gustafson. I am professor of law at uh, uh, UCI School of Law. I'm also co-director of the Center on Law, Equality, and Race, uh, which is known as CLEAR. Uh, I want to thank you all for coming. Uh, please know that this session is being recorded. Uh, thanks to the many people who are joining uh, us to mark Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Even bigger thanks to my colleagues who are offering their time and their thoughts at the end of a very busy first week of classes. Uh, in the last part of his life, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was deeply concerned with not merely political equality, but also material equality. Many people forget that the March on Washington was a march for jobs and freedom. Civil rights organizers in the 1960s were keenly aware that racial justice and economic justice are inseparable issues. In the years since, there have been questions repeatedly raised uh, by scholars, activists, and thinkers of all sorts about what reparations would involve in the United States. Um, there have also been questions about uh, whether there are meaningful routes to reparations uh, and what the consequences uh, would be for a reparations program. Uh, in 2021, California established a task force to study and develop reparations proposals for African Americans. So there is now uh, a reparations task force um, and you can um, uh, actually find out about those meetings by Googling the Repar California Reparations Task Force. Um, for this program, uh, we have three distinguished speakers uh, talking about reparations. Uh, I will do very brief introductions, uh, after which our speakers will offer their thoughts. Um, our three speakers today are uh, Mirsa Baradaran, uh, Professor Baradaran uh, uh, is a, a well-known author. Um, she has uh, her two notable books are How the Other Half Banks and The Color of Money, Black Banks and the Racial Wealth Gap. Uh, at UCI, she teaches courses on banking law, contracts, uh, property and housing. And she also teaches a course on uh, law and racial capitalism. Uh, our second speaker will be Jamelia Morgan, Assistant Professor of Law at UCI. Uh, she is an expert in race, gender, and disability. Um, she has an amazing forthcoming uh, article, but also uh, a number of uh, uh, in truly impressive uh, past articles. Um, and I look forward to her comments. And finally, we will be hearing um, from Bob Solomon. Uh, he is Distinguished Clinical Professor of Law here at UCI and co-director of the Community and Economic Development Clinic. He is also co-chair of UCI's Center for the Study of Cannabis. Um, uh, Professor Solomon does a lot of work on the ground and with the assistance of our students uh, uh, around uh, uh, community 
uh, economic development. So we will begin with uh, Professor Baradaran. After uh, our three speakers present, uh, I will open things up for questions. We do have a, a Q&A. You can go down to the bottom of your um, Zoom page and submit questions. Those questions will be uh, uh, can be seen only by the panelists, but I will read them out to everyone. So thank you again, Professor Barone. Thank you. Uh, so in the, during the summer of, um, after uh, we all watched the horrific video of George Floyd's um, murder, and we, many of us went on the streets to march, and I went out with my kids, and um, one of the, the chants spoken by, uh, you know, protest groups is no justice, no peace. And so we just kept repeating no justice, no peace. And, and in the meantime, I was working on a testimony uh, for reparations for both the California Reparations Task Force and the U.S. Congress. And so I was um, working at home, and as I was kind of intoning this um, uh, chant and the march, it kind of just clicked for me, why reparations, right? No justice, no peace. Um, and if you look at, you know, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, so I, I, wrote, I did write this up for the uh, prospect just that night. I came home and I was like, this is, this is why uh, justice has to be done. So in his I Have a Dream speech, Martin Luther King framed uh, the Black American claim to justice as rooted in this broken promise. He says there's a promissory note to which, and as a banking person, I look at these, these things that, that, that bring up anything related to banks. So he says, a promissory note to which every American would fall to air, a promise that all men would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. King said that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring the sacred obligation, America has given the Negro, he said, people a bad check, which has come back to mark insufficient funds. Um, continuing in the framing of a broken contractual obligation, he lays claim to a remedy. We've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demands the riches of freedom and the security of justice. Uh, no justice, no peace, right? Um, he uh, was referring to, of course, the promises made in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment that had up until that point been violated over and over again, and not just violated, but added on to with, you know, New Deal era um, uh, exclusions, where if you look up where exactly George Floyd was murdered, it was a redlined area in um, uh, Minneapolis. It was a, a banking desert, a food desert, uh, you know, low mobility ladders. That, that was a purposeful and purposefully racist a mapping of risk across the United States that we have never directly remedied. Um, and and uh, so when we talk, I, I hope I have some contract students here, when we talk about contracts, when we talk about contract breach, any promise, uh, if you breach it, you pay damages. Um, and there are various theories over hundreds of years developed of damages. We talk about restitution damages, unjust enrichment. We talk about reliance damages. We talk about expectancy damages, compensatory damages, any of those damages framework. The law knows how to do comp complex damages. We have, you know, 9-11 funds. We have opiate funds. We know how to break down, and it's never enough. We know that you're never actually made whole. Uh, damages are never fully paid because the harm usually way outweighs what you're ever going to get as far as justice is concerned, right? The traumas cannot be re uh, 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 remedied. The deaths, 
um, the the uh, racism that still lives within us cannot be remedied. And so, uh, but we know how to do that. That is in our law. And so, I, it, it seems that until we do, we will not sort of meet the the dream of our nation. And I I I mean, um, I I think that um, there is. Uh, so the argument, I think, for giving reparations is, is pretty clear constitutionally. It's also very um, non-complicated, sort of uh, structurally, uh, monetarily. Uh, you know, I think, I, I, you know, as again, I was writing up how this might happen. Um, the COVID uh, fiscal response and the Fed uh, came came online, right? And so I was like, well, I'm trying to convince people that look, there are there is money and we can do it. And all of a sudden, overnight, the Fed created trillions of dollars to send out into bond markets, into liquidity markets, money that just comes back into the Fed. And so the money is there, the practical practicality is there, the law is there. Um, and I think just the, the, the last thing I will say, and, and the thing that Martin Luther King uh, understood, and so did the people who, uh, the majority of Americans who did vote along those lines at the time, understood that, you know, even the founders, even, even Madison, who, who was a slave, you know, a booster of slavery, um, called, Madison, uh, called slavery America's original sin. Um, C. Van Woodward, a historian of the South, explained how white supremacy and Jim Crow destroyed the soul of the South. Right? Racism destroys the soul of its perpetrators, even as it plunders the labor and the bodies of its victims. Um, Frederick Douglass, in his memoir, uh, talks about the white woman who purchased him and was ruined by slavery. He vividly writes about the cost to her of owning another human being. He talks about slavery proved as injurious to her as it did to me. I mean, I, I, I doubt it, but he says, when I went there, she was a pious, warm, and tender-hearted woman. She had bread for the hungry, clothes for the naked, and comfort for every mourner that came within her reach. Soon, slavery soon proved its ability to divest her of those qualities. Under its influences, the tender heart became stone, and the lamb-like disposition gave way to one of tiger-like fierceness. Um, she became red with rage. The voice made of, uh, of you know, kindness changed to one of harsh and horrid discord, and that uh, her face <laughs> turned into, you know, sort of uh, a, kind of a master's face, and he, which he describes as a demon. Um, so racism, it's aiders, it's abettors, it's justifiers. Uh, the cops, the white moderates, as, as Martin Luther King would call them, um, are uh, all of us are sick with this rot at the core of our democracy. And we've seen its many iterations on, on the video in our democracy at the uh, seizing of the Capitol. Um, and it must be rooted out and addressed. It, it must be held out to the light. And that's what reparations does. That's what truth and reconciliation demands. And uh, it must be examined honestly. It has to be dealt with properly. Um, and not just for the sake of the people who it's harmed the most, but for the sake of the American soul. Um, and so atoning for our country's original sin is sort of the way to uh, have the peace and justice that, that the protesters um, have been demanding. So. Sorry, my mouse is having troubles. Um, thank you, uh, Professor Baradaran. Professor Morgan, uh, I do like to share your thoughts. Sure, thank you so much, uh, Professor Gustafson, and to my terrific colleagues. It's really an honor to be here, certainly uh, to honor uh, Dr. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and also um, to engage in this very important conversation. I'm gonna offer a few remarks to help us kind of frame some of these big questions that often come up in discussions of abolition, the what, the how, the why, so many of which uh, Professor Baradin has 
centered and discussed. Um, and so I hope you'll bear with me for about 10 minutes or so as I go through uh, some of the scholar activists and literature that has informed how I think about um, uh, reparations, including anti-slavery abolitionists, civil rights activists, of course, Dr. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, and ongoing abolitionist organizing today. So how can we define reparations? Um, Jordan Brewington in Dismantling the Master's House, Reparations on the American Plantation, defines reparations as follows. Reparations are acts and processes of repair. They are grounded in the will to heal, to restore a people wounded, but not destroyed by intergenerational brutality and injustice. Reparationists seek accountability for historic injustices and call for the cessation of contemporary practices that perpetuate wrongdoings and persecute suppressed communities. Reparative acts are meant to give assurances to survivors that the injustices they have endured will not be repeated in the future. They will ultimately require the redistribution of power and efforts to leverage power, influence resources, ensure cessation and non-repetition. Noted reparation scholars, William Darity and Kirsten Mullen in their book, which I do recommend from here to equality, reparations for black Americans in the 21st century. They define reparations as quote, a program of acknowledgement redress and closure for a grievous injustice. Acknowledgement is the admission of wrong and the declaration of responsibility for restitution by the culpable parties. Redress is the act of restitution, compensation for the wrong carried out by the culpable party. Closure is the settling of accounts between the victimized community and the culpable party, the arrival at conciliation. Similar to Brewington, Darity, and Mullen, abolitionists organizers and thinkers, Andrea Ritchie and Miriam Kaba, note a reparations framework includes five elements, repair, restoration, acknowledgement, cessation, and non-repetition of harm. There's different types of reparations, and these are centered in a number of national, local uh, grassroots campaigns. And I'm going to provide a taxonomy so we can kind of think not only about the what, but the different types of reparations that exist. There's economic reparations, diversities, uh, there's a diversity of proposals ranging from individual cash payments to individual group administered funds. Why cash payments? Well, according to Darity and Kirsten Mullen, in our estimation, black, white wealth inequality is the most powerful economic indicator of the full effects of racial injustice in the United States. Black Americans constitute 13% of the, the nation's population, but own less than 3% of the nation's wealth. Certainly, Marissa, your work has pointed to this as well. Of course, there are limits to individual cash payments. Mari Matsuda has long argued that the extent of racialized harms cannot be adequately compensated through cash payments, but still they should be centered and discussed in calls for reparation. Instead of cash payments or in addition to um, scholars like Catherine Frankie and of course, many of the abolitionist organizing that's happening in communities like River Road in Louisiana have called for a redistribution of land ownership as a form of racial repair. Beyond uh, cash payments and land distribution, we've also seen calls for what Jordan Brewington terms narrative reparations. This includes public apologies, truth commissions, public memorials, and access to historic artifacts and records, as is again the movement in communities in Louisiana to obtain access to records about enslaved ancestors from many of the uh, current occupants of the plantations there. 
Why do these form of narrative reparations matter? Well, reshaping the narrative about slavery and its afterlife, the ongoing impacts of structural racism, affirms the humanity of descendants and the past and ongoing trauma that they have and continue to experience. Reshaping the narrative, narrative contextualizes structural racism, shifts the narrative from individualized explanations of inequality and marginalization and indeed criminalization and violence, adverse health outcomes to structural ones. It allows for a set of justifications to inform future reparations campaigns. And finally, it builds solidarity across communities. It recognizes the, the, the shared histories of oppression, the genealogies of racial oppression across racialized, negatively racialized groups. And finally, we can think about another type of reparation as systemic. This includes really a focus on shifting power back to communities and actively disrupting social hierarchies. Again, we can look to redistribution or land back campaigns, um, attempts to shift um, ownership from the current purveyors of what can be termed the plantation uh, tourism industry, actual organizing right now in the South to attempt to um, acquire the proceeds from plantation tourism, tourism that takes place on, on current um, uh, plantations in the South, redirect those funds to descendants of enslaved Black people who worked on those plantations, or Black laborers who were tied up in sharecropping or debt peonage agreements worked on those plantations using legal instruments like eminent domain power. There's also different ways of thinking about reparations that center in, in the way that we define reparations. Compensation. Reparations can be paid at the individual or community level, either as in-kind or cash payments, or they can be distributed at the community level in the form of scholarships and trust funds, in-kind expenditures, commemorations, or museums. Uh, one um, example could be the uh, Sh Chicago um, uh, Police Torture Victims Memorial, which is still yet unfunded, but many other reparations uh, components or components of the reparations campaign have been implemented, again, by uh, organizers, um, largely abolitionist organizers on the ground. So, Rehabilitative reparations, um, as Roy Brooks refers to, are designed to nurture the, the group, the oppressed group's self-empowerment and community building and achieve actual outcomes like closing the racial wealth gap. So we have both compensation or compensatory reparations and rehabilitative reparations. When we think about the administration of reparations, there's extensive work on how reparations should be paid out, how funds should be structured, to ensure um, accountability and that fiduciary duties are adhered to. Darity and Mullen uh, state quite frankly that they believe that reparations should come from the US, from the federal government, and that the government should pay given the government's complicity in structural racism. But others like Bruntin again, and, and um, many organizers and abolitionists work on the ground today, argue that descendants are central to a vision of reparations and argue for what can be termed local reparations. Again, I'm relying on Brewington's definition, which allow for institutions to, at the local level, identify the exact axes of white supremacy they perpetuate and develop a tailored policy of repair that of course incorporates the views of the, of the descendants and engages them in power and decision-making authority in order to address the historical injustices. So local reparations facilitate the deeper work of identifying the harms caused by the evolution of the institution of slavery, pinpointing how every individual has been harmed by the system. 
So again, I've relied on scholars like Jordan Brewington and Roy Brooks, uh, Miriam Kaba and Andrea Ritchie to kind of articulate the contours of what is, um, what is reparations, thinking about abolition and thinking about civil rights. But I want to finally close by thinking about what CRT, critical race theory, um, provides in terms of thinking about this ongoing movement and calls, demands, if you will, for reparations. So one, when we think about the various forms and models of reparations, which model, the kind of tort model that we're perhaps as lawyers more familiar with compensating for individual injury, for dress, or atonement, sort of looking at the narrative type reparations, the public apologies, the public um, memorials, and which type, economic, narrative, or structural, is more likely to gain buy-in from non-Black communities, just to again focus in on non-Black reparations, on Black reparations. So I'm relying, of course, on Derek Bell's famous interest convergence thesis, which um, states that racial reforms will only be permitted to the extent that these reforms align with white middle-class interests. We can see this, as Bell did, as potentially a barrier, uh, as a cynicism that reflected Bell's belief in the permanence of racism. But we can also see it as a possibility. What interests can be surfaced to promote and prevent backlash? Possible interests, shifting the um, current forms of Southern tourism, if you will, away from the traditional plantation tourism to one that's rooted in um, addressing sort of the traumas, uh, truth-telling that centers the actual histories of enslaved people in this country and their descendants, something akin to the work that Equal Justice Initiative is doing around the lynching memorials. Beyond reform, what models or types of reparations best promote mobilization to shift power? How can reparations ensure um, that there is indeed a shift in power um, through not only the administration of these funds, but through getting these laws passed in the first place. Could reparations framework include things like proportional representation in city councils, veto power, of course, in addition to, if not uh, replacing opportunities like cash transfers. Intersectionality. So intersectionality requires us to avoid erasures and recognize heightened vulnerabilities to state violence, poverty, predation, environmental racism, food insecurity within quote unquote black communities, including trans black communities, low income black communities, disabled black communities. How would a viable reparations regime account for these multiply marginalized identity and status groups? And lastly, critical race theory backlash. So in the movement for black lives, a 2016 platform, advocates called for a quote, reparations for the cultural and educational exploitation, erasure and extraction of our communities in the form of mandated public school curriculums. They sort of, um, in a very prescient way, <laughs> were able to, to see the backlash to discussions of race and critical race theory in schools, really race, because I think as many of you, I see a few of my CRT students know, the current backlash is really not about the definition of critical race theory, at least as we know it. Backlash against the 1619 Project, equity, diversity, and inclusion initiatives, or really any discussion of the harms of racism in society. I think supporters of reparations campaigns should also focus in on resisting this, this backlash and these forms of resistance to truth-telling within our public schools as a part of any effort to obtain reparations in a local community statewide, statewide or other. Um, I also would plug the work of the African American Policy Forum that is working around the country to address this form of backlash. So um, I'll stop there and 
look forward to the discussion. Thank you. Thank you well, very much. Okay, please, Professor Solomon. I, I will say that um, it is spectacular listening to um, Karen and Mirsa uh, and Jamelia. It, it is less spectacular having to be the person who goes after them. Um, but, but that said, it is a true joy to be here and to be able to talk about these issues. Um, I, I want to start with some of the impediments that we hear as a regular basis. Um, uh, Jamelia uh, or Mirsa mentioned that um, uh, the notion of um, uh, slavery as America's original sin, Mitch McConnell says that. Um, but then he then follows it up with, that was a long time ago. No one alive today did anything wrong. Um, both of those are, are fictions. Um, it didn't happen a long time ago. It's still happening today. The results are uh, certainly of redlining and housing policies and all kinds of other things. Um, and many of us are beneficiaries of these policies. I certainly am one. Um, and as my nature, I want to tell um, three short stories uh, about how all this happens. One is the um, New York Life Insurance Company. Um, you could also add Aetna and U.S. Life as well. Um, in the 1840s, when, uh, when the New York Life Insurance Company was formed, um, they had a great idea to raise capital, and that was to insure the lives of slaves not life insurance as we think of it, but property insurance. Um, and uh, this turned out to be pretty profitable initially. In the long run, it was not. Um, but it enabled uh, New York Life Insurance Company, now I think the third largest uh, or second largest company in the country, uh, to gain a foothold in the South, which was very important along the way. Second story, uh, and you know, all of Northern businesses were built on, on slavery and relations to slavery. Uh, you can go through anything from paper to crops to, to virtually every industry. And it's just the insurance industry is one we ignore a little bit. Second story uh, is uh, about 40 acres and a mule, the original really 40 acres. Uh, you've all heard this. We all understand this as being the first attempt um, uh, uh, to, to do something uh, right to, uh, after the war to redistribute land. Um, it's generally attributed to uh, General Sherman. It is a field order from General Sherman, uh, which was ultimately assigned by Abraham Lincoln. But there's something remarkable in how we got there. Uh, and that is that General Sherman did something that no one had done before. Uh, he went to 11 um, black uh, ministers, um, all men, in uh, Georgia, in uh, Savannah, and said, what do you want? How can we protect your people um, as we go further? And the, uh, the group had some very specific ideas. We want land. Uh, we want to be able to kill that land. We want self-government. And they were prescient enough to say the land should be on the uh, barrier islands or on the coast, preferably the islands, uh, to make it more difficult um, for whites to come and take the land because they will try to do so. They will try to do so. Uh, and later the mule was um, uh, added, usually really use of government mules. 
Uh, and uh, after Lincoln died, um, that was reversed. Uh, and of course, uh, we then saw the KKK come in uh, and that plan uh, destroyed. The third story I want to tell is a very personal story about how all this works out. Uh, Mirsa has written a lot about this. Uh, I was born in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, my father uh, uh, was a soldier in World War II. Uh, I was part of the largest birth class, 1947, almost 75 years ago, when everyone came back from the war. Uh, and one of the first things that my parents did uh, is to move out of Newark. Uh, we were a Jewish family. There was a, a Jewish move from uh, Newark. Uh, and uh, first to rental housing and then to a suburb in New Jersey, Teaneck, New Jersey. Uh, my father uh, was able to purchase a house for $9,000. Uh, and he had zero money, no capital at all. Uh, he did have VA money. He had a loan from the VA administration as a veteran, and he was able to borrow a small down deposit from a life insurance policy provided by the Veterans Administration. In other words, with no money, he was able to do what any veteran could do. Uh, we lived in a small row house, um, not a wealthy part of town by any means, and five of the six uh, uh, of those row houses were occupied by Jewish families. Um, took me about 30 years to understand what all that meant. Um, uh, my elementary school was all white, but about one third Jewish. So that meant that this was a place that was pretty much limited uh, to, uh, to white buyers, uh, but it was also a place where Jews were allowed to move in. Uh, and that created uh, a very particular community. Um, that led to me going to a school where uh, a junior high and a high school uh, where, um, uh, where most of my college, 90%, I think 95% of my high school went to college. Um, the odd part about all of that is that uh, black soldiers did not have that opportunity. Black soldiers could not have bought into that neighborhood. Uh, the VA would not have allowed it. Redlining would not have allowed it. Um, and that has continued up until present time. Housing patterns mean a lot. Uh, and so we continue those kinds of patterns uh, and we continue to have beneficiaries. And I, you know, my father, uh, Yogi Berra said, when you come to the fork in the road, take it. My father took it. Um, it was only, he had a choice of where to go. Other people did not have a choice. Um, and that's a continuation uh, of the kind of harms that we have talked about over the years. It is hard, as Jamelia pointed out, figuring out how to quantify and, and where to start. Um, my own views are, I, I'm not content with starting with a cash payout because I think what will happen is what will happen um, with Japanese internment um, reparations, which was you end up with a lump sum number and divide it up and it's too small. Uh, it is nice to get a lump sum of $20,000, um, but it is not going to make the kind of changes that we need. So I like to go back to 40 acres uh, or 40 acres in the mule and see what was the intent and how do we recreate that intent? Well, the real intent was to create uh, a home, a safe home, uh, employment, uh, uh, maybe subsistence, but sufficient employment uh, and enough to, uh, to create generational wealth because land creates general, generational wealth. 
The other way we create generational wealth is through education. So um, I think to start with, universal preschool is just a no-brainer. We know that the best dollars that we can put into the school system is for a high-quality equal preschool, not particularly expensive. All this money will add up in the end, um, but something that should be available to everyone. And we know right, right now uh, we are creating a system uh, where low-income people um, particularly people of color um, are in a situation where children are entering kindergarten at a tremendous disadvantage. We also know if you do not start um, reversing that advantage um, by uh, disadvantage by six and a half years of age, you run into reading problems and you run into permanent problems. Can't let that happen. Uh, we know how to reverse it, we should. We should also do the same thing uh, for uh, um, higher education, uh, and we should really be emphasizing state schools, land-grant schools, community colleges, uh, the schools that really make a difference in moving people up the economic ladder. Um, Yale, Harvard, uh, Stanford do not really need the help of the federal government or the tax code, yet the tax code helps those schools more than it helps um, anyone else. I'll get to that in one second, but first I wanna to get to housing. We have a housing program, um, uh, Section 8, which is a tenant subsidy program uh, in which we spend very little money compared to what we spend for the overall federal budget. We do not allow it to be used for ownership except in very limited circumstances. We need to change that. We need to make it so that the federal government is contributing to home ownership for eligible people, and that should be part of a reparations plan. It should be pretty liberal, uh, and that's not gonna be enough money. So we should add that the home, that the federal government uh, or state governments, but it's gonna be, as you know, Jamelia pointed out, largely federal government funds should take a soft second mortgage. In other words, the federal government should take an equity provision uh, in housing uh, for people who couldn't otherwise afford their home. And how will this be paid off for people who don't have adequate money? By time. Uh, one easy way is to say every year, 10% of your mortgage will be paid off. If you live there 10 years, you will now have built up equity. You want to make it 20 years, it's okay with me, but allow it to be intergenerational. Allow people to buy in wealthy neighborhoods um, with government subsidies where over time, um, it becomes a real ownership issue. Right now, uh, we have 90% um, of affordable housing is built through the low income housing tax credit. In other words, we're giving rich people uh, a, a tax subsidy uh, in order to uh, build affordable housing. It's not that terrible uh, because it does result in affordable housing being built. It's all rentals. We need to give the same incentives to the same builders to do home ownership and then tie it together with lending programs. The program's in place. Uh, it'll work. We know it will work. Uh, does it mean more tax expenditures? Yes. It's worth mentioning what a tax expenditure is. It's what we used to call tax credits. It's money that the federal government doesn't get. It's the same as spending money, except it's a very cute way for Congress to pass policies favoring the wealthy without actually giving the wealthy money. Instead, the wealthy pay less taxes. 
we are currently having uh, a tax expenditure, meaning money the tax that the federal government does not receive in taxes of $1.4 trillion a year. $1.4 trillion, $8 billion of that goes for the low-income housing tax credit to build affordable housing. In other words, if you see a dime on the street and don't think it's worth picking up, that's what we're putting in to affordable housing. Um, and so funds are there. Uh, we, are, we currently have a policy where people are giving their charitable contributions for things like a $60,000 high school football stadium uh, in Texas. I am sure it's a great stadium. I wouldn't mind seeing it, having a hot dog. I don't want my federal government paying for it. Um, that's letting an individual set public policy well beyond what should be done. Most of the educational grants that are given through charitable contributions are going to Yale to build the theater, Harvard, Stanford, continue guessing. Um, they are not going to historic black universities, not going to community schools, not going to the places that make a difference. Finally, um, I do want to say something about cannabis um, for a couple reasons. Um, the absolute no-brainer is um, we, we have a 50-year policy um, based on uh, uh, a system uh, uh, that is racial. It's overwhelmingly racial. Both liberals and conservatives agree it's a failure. Uh, and the notion that people are still in jail or have a jail, have a record of a conviction uh, is ridiculous. We need uh, to, to have that change immediately. Um, and we need to clean up records, and it should not require any action by someone with a conviction. It's government function. Let's get it done. Perhaps equally or even more important, it's rare that we have new industry where there is going to be so much capital put in and ultimately so much profit. Uh, and we talk about equity. We talk about doing something for communities. Uh, in which uh, that have suffered over the past 50 years or even longer, uh, we're not too good at it. Uh, both uh, California and New York have equity provisions for new businesses. Uh, LA and San Francisco have been dismal at making it work. Uh, we need ways to bring capital. We need partnership. Uh, we need to put a limitation on uh, people with capital coming in to require partnerships, to require investments in communities. And the final thing is both in housing and education uh, and in cannabis, we have local control. We have bad zoning laws uh, and it's zoning out cannabis as well as housing, zoning out multiple unit housing. Um, all of that requires political will by states, by federal government. Um, this is all ways of separating races, separating incomes. Uh, concentration of poverty is uh, part of concentration of race, uh, and we have been doing it um, since before the Civil War, uh, and we continue to do it. Uh, we need to change all of that. Thank you very, very much, all of you. Um, so uh, a reminder to folks in the audience, we do have uh, a Q&A. Uh, if you go down to the bottom of your Zoom window, uh, there is a Q&A icon. You can submit questions. Uh, I am going to read a question that has been submitted. It says, I appreciate Professor Solomon providing very specific ideas for reparations, which are likely to have a big impact on many Black Americans. However, will improved education and housing feel like reparations to Black Americans 
that have borne generations of racist laws and regulations. Yeah, I'm probably the worst person to answer that. Um, I'll, I'll leave that open I'm to the, anybody who's here. I, I'm the white guy from New Jersey. Uh, <laughs> I, I propose plans that I think will work, um, but I am still the white guy from New Jersey. Would anyone I'll, else like to, yeah. to speak to that? I'll pr provide thoughts, just again, informed by the organizing that's happening in communities, which I think is rather inspiring. To the extent that we think reparations are sort of a far off goal, there are a number of groups that are actively seeking and have won um, uh, at the kind of local level successful campaigns for reparations. So I'm going to talk about the Chicago Torture Justice Memorials. I referenced um, some of their work and when I'm done speaking, I'll include a link to the work that they've been doing. So one of the things that is central in a lot of the organizing, particularly um, at the local level within abolitionist spaces, is this idea of atonement. So Roy Brooks refers to this as the atonement model of reparations, which seeks to uh, not only think about specific proposals of which uh, Professor Solomon, you aptly laid out and set forth, but the atonement model is forward-looking and it's responsive to trauma and it seeks healing in the process of truth-telling and reconciliation, right? And we have, of course, international law, um, uh, human rights um, and work, I'm thinking of the South African context where this has been uh, developed and operationalized, although there's limits there as well, um, that, and I can point to literature on that for those that are interested, but there are particular elements that need to be included. And I think that's what the question is, is getting at. Um, what does racial reconciliation look like? It looks like a recognition and atonement for the harms that happened. And it might be on an individualized level, like we have templates for that. I, I think of um, some of the work that Ken Feinberg did in implementing the 9-11 fund, like he allowed survivors and um, survivors of those that were lost in, in that incident to speak about what they were experiencing as a part of the process for obtaining compensation. Now that is a, is a tort model. It's less focused in on kind of reparations and atonement as I think the kind of um, radical thinking around reparations and, and reform thinking around reparations is, but forgiveness has to be a part of it. And that's why I think the public apology um, the truth and reconciliation processes do matter and can be a complement to, um, again, some of these specific proposals that are about shifting resources and power uh, to, um, you know, Black communities that have been impacted by slavery and its afterlives. Yeah, I, I do want to add that, um, you know, some of you probably read that Santa Monica uh, recently has a, a program for housing loans and, and subsidies. Uh, the, New York, the LA Times reported it as an act of civic penance. Um, I, I think that's important. We're, we're, we've been, we're terrible as a country in coming together, uh, uh, coming to grips with our history. And so I, I really do think truth and reconciliation for all of us is a critical first step. And of course, we're seeing that any mention of teaching real history is reaching, is, has a tremendous pushback. Um, yeah, and I, I would say that the lesson of history is, you know, uh, two, twofold. One is that um, a lot of the time, I mean, so the, one is that this is not a, a, a new conversation. I mean, I think, you know, with, with the 40 Acres and Emil, with, you know, Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, Carter Woodson, every black leader uh, over time and, and from the beginning, you know, of, of the, the first slave ship coming, there's always been a struggle 
for uh, not just freedom, but also repair. And, and those struggles have failed, quite honestly. The civil rights um, movement was very much about, as, as, as Karin started this, this talk, was about economic justice remedies to that. And, and Johnson got really close, but um, didn't quite uh, uh, make it. And, and, and so I think one of the things is that there are a lot of models. I think the, the thing that goes wrong is when it is not directed by the community itself. And so part of the demand for land was a demand for participation in the democracy that was tied to land. So I think Frederick Douglass and the, the Reconstruction, uh, during Reconstruction, Black leaders understood that if they lost their land, they would lose their um, uh, rights, political rights. And so if you don't have land, if you don't have political rights, you don't have the vote, then the, the rule of law doesn't protect any land that you can accrue. So it's not just that they didn't get the 40 acres of mule. So for the next 100 years, if a black man got land and a white mob wanted to lynch him for getting the land, if he got an, a, a patent right, if he got a, and it's all he, I mean, it was, <laughs> the gender was not quite inclusive yet, but, but if he got any sort of uh, uh, power or if you built a whole black Wall Street, um, they would come and uh, the, 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 the law would not protect you against the vigilante violence. And so I think that it's, it's integrative. And I think that what history shows is that racism and, and discrimination and the plunder of the black community didn't happen at once and through one institution. So it's not just education or housing or credit or I mean, we can uh, there are multiple fields, taxation, any field you go down to, you go three layers deep and then there's a racist code that kind of supports the entire superstructure. And so I, I would think that a reparations program would be and and and, and President Biden actually in, in, in one speech on racism, it should be the business of the federal government, the entire federal government, I would say state and local. And this is not to say that this is the only thing, but every organization knows where the bones are buried in their own organization. The Treasury supported the Freedmen's Bank. The Fed has supported FHA, you know, lending for, for years and years, the Department of Education. I mean, they know what they did. They know their own history. There is a historian and a uh, documentarian for every single institution. And so it does have to be across the board. And so I think there's, there's a temptation with reparations discussions to go right down to the practicalities because they do seem insuperable. Um, but the U.S. maintained the system of racial domination for hundreds of years and that was uh, you know complicated and and so I think that that um, the first conversation is to find the political will and I think that insofar as that's missing the practicalities are never going to be fixed but once that's there the practicalities go away the, the the details actually are irrelevant because we'll figure it out I mean we figured out like Bob said um, Jewish the Jewish community Italian community the Irish community were not white they were heavily discriminated against they were put also in sort of racial ghettos and post-World War II, policymakers decided not to do that I don't know if that's a positive story about how policy can shape uh, sort of uh, the hearts and minds of people toward other races, um, but it, it did happen. And over a generation, those real, I mean, obviously anti-Semitism isn't gone, um, but there was a way that those um, racial ghettos did disappear almost overnight, uh, well, in a decade. Okay, uh, we have uh, some more questions. Uh, the next question is, the discussion of legal impediments and therefore opportunities to addressing racial inequity leaves out some current zoning and uh, housing policies at the state and local level. 
For example, California's Prop 13 created a class of usually white winners and zoning prohibits denser developments. Just look at Irvine. Uh, is that part of the equation or too far outside the remit of reparations? Bob, would you like sure. to take that? It's absolutely part of the equation. Zoning uh, is a major uh, way in which we have segregated communities. Um, and, and to the extent that we have subsidized rental housing, uh, as soon as we say it's one acre zoning, we are saying no one can afford a rental. Uh, as soon as we say we are only having single family housing, we are saying you have to be wealthy to buy, to buy into that. Um, and you will not be able to use a, uh, a rental voucher because there's nothing, nowhere to rent. Um, a few times I've been on, on the radio on shows on homelessness. And one question that comes every time is that my community is issuing Section 8 vouchers, uh, and, uh, but they're using very few of them. Is that because they're discriminating? And the answer is no, that's because your zoning is discriminating uh, and there aren't enough rental units and the people with the vouchers have a piece of paper that's really not worth very much. Um, and so we need to change that. The problem to me is local control. Local control, I've practiced law in, in three states and every state has strong local control, uh, which means that uh, we have very few places where people can live. At, at one point when I worked on an urban mapping program in, in Connecticut, uh, we looked at who had vouchers uh, and where they were able to use the vouchers and we did mapping over uh, uh, the places that were getting the most uh, complaints about housing code enforcement, and the maps are overlapped. In other words, you can only use your voucher in the worst part of town, because if you're a slumlord, you're delighted to have a Section 8 voucher, um, because you're going to be able to collect more rent than you would otherwise. Uh, there's very little enforcement by this at, at, at the federal level. Um, but largely when we allow local zoning codes and we put no pressure from the state or the federal government, we are excluding people. Uh, so I think there's a little bit of a follow-up I'd, I'd like to ask that question that I, I think um, uh, might be of interest to all three of you. And, uh, you know, we're talking about different levels of government. Um, you know, there's a, a big question of um, whether federalism has always been a harm to African-Americans. Um, uh, uh, and there's this tension between control among communities over the resources that might happen through reparations, um, but political will at different uh, levels to uh, provide that. And so I, I think one of the follow-up questions is, would an effective reparations program have to come from the federal government? depends how you define effective. We could have a state government program that's effective in California, but it's not going to be effective in Texas. Um, so the, I mean, the reason that the federal government is usually the place we go is because the federal government has, a, has the mint. They have the money. They have the power to print money, and, and the states do not. So to the extent that states are giving back property, that's all great. But, but again, like the scale of the the theft, whatever you want to call it, the scale of the plunder, it can only be something that the federal government can remedy. And so usually when it's big things like that, even when there's like a disaster in a single state and FEMA comes, 
there's a, there's a treasury backstop. And the FDIC fund goes into the red, there's a treasury backstop. And the treasury backstop things because they can make money. And uh, they've done so very easily. We are at the cheapest, I mean, maybe not, you know, going forward, but, but it's, it's just much easier for the federal government to do it. But of course, these state projects are also necessary because as Bob said, and as the first question about, on zoning says, zoning is very much a local issue. And zoning, if you look at the Euclid case in the Supreme Court, I teach it in property, that, that case was decided because the justices um, believed that apartment buildings and the people who resided in them, code, coded as people of color and immigrants, um, black, black people, of course, were a nuisance, were blight, were a harm to safety to the safety of white children in single family homes. And so these decisions were built upon like a eugenicist understanding of, of children and people who lived in smaller houses. And so that's a racist law. It's racist from the core of it. The roots of it were, uh, were racist. And so I think, yes, that, that, that is definitely part of it. The one thing I would add is just in some of the early theorizing, um, just to again, refer back to, uh, the uh, scholar that I referenced, Jordan Brewington in the Yale Law Journal, that article talks about eminent domain and the use of eminent domain to redistribute land ownership. And it's certainly a radical approach. And I think that that would allow for, um, especially given like the, the Supreme Court's Kalo decision, and uh, I think it's the Midkiff decision. Um, I'm not a property law scholar, but again, and I haven't looked at the contours of that argument, but it, it does at least allow uh, for states some, some leeway in redistributing land. And, and I think that um, if we look to sort of Native Hawaiians and their movement to try to um, reclaim land for Indigenous Hawaiians, we can see the use of, again, policies at the state level to allow for that redistribution. So again, just to allude to um, a set of uh, devices, uh, you know, uh, that the state can engage in. You're on mute, Kevin. You're on mute. We only have five minutes, so I'm I'm selecting some of the uh, questions. Um, one is, can anyone comment on what role state and federal courts should or could play in enabling reparations programs to take hold? Uh, conversely, are there ways in which courts have impeded or might impede reparations movements? Well, should and could are very different. <laughs> Um, uh, courts have not been great on housing zoning cases. Uh, we we have had some Supreme Court cases during the war in years, which which broke down some barriers like restrictive covenants, um, but uh, uh, did very little in uh, in any affirmative requirements. Uh, so what courts should do, um, to me, would start with. Um, uh, the voting cases, for one thing, um, are important. Uh, the gerrymandering cases um, are important. Um, breaking down state Supreme Courts could break down local controls pretty quickly uh, and, and do not. Um, all of those things are pretty important. Uh, if we had some situation of the federal or state government taking land by eminent domain for the purpose of uh, creating of reparations or even desegregation, uh, we're going to see a lot of lawsuits. And I would not be uh, surprised if the current Supreme Court finds that to be an unconstitutional taking. Um, and so, you know, when people say 
the federal courts, because they have a federal defense of all the money, state courts have separate constitutions. Uh, and uh, Ohio yesterday or today found the gerrymandering in Ohio to be unconstitutional under Ohio law. Uh, and it's almost certain that the Supreme Court would take it, would not touch it. So we do have a complicated system. Yeah, I'll just add, I wanted to include the link to the um, the Randall case. I don't know if you all have been following the litigation um, in state court, seeking reparations for the Tulsa race riots in 1920, 1921. Indeed, the name plaintiff, um, Ms. Randall, was 107 this year and waiting for a court decision on the complaint and in response, um, an opinion on the defendant's motion to dismiss. So I'll include that. There's, there is a role for courts, but, um, you know, in terms of kind of litigation, um, the use of litigation to seek reparations, um, there's, there's not that many cases. And so I think that's an open question, but of course we're dealing with doctrine and how courts will interpret it, the politics of the Supreme Court and where we are in terms of the judiciary and, and the move rightward. I think these are all complicated and, and sort of questions that um, look, or responses to which look sort of daunting uh, in, in general, kind of given the political landscape. And to add to that, courts in many cases will say, uh, there is a statute of limitations that has long passed. Statute of limitations is just a legal construct, which often is uh, uh, to create a just situation for a defendant. There is no just defendant in this case. This is a public policy issue. Uh, we are down to one minute, um, uh, but I'd like to pose just one more question, uh, uh, which has to do with the, the issue uh, Jamelia Morgan raised about interest convergence. Now, some of the, the proposals um, that have come out of this discussion have been more universalistic, which would mean they would be more appealing um, to uh, uh, voters across uh, the racial spectrum, uh, universal pre-K is probably one of those. Um, and others uh, that are, are specific, especially directed um, uh, uh, benefits to uh, people who can trace back uh, their lineage to uh, people who were enslaved that would probably uh, pose more resistance. Given the spectrum, uh, if we have a, a, a limited range of options, where do we where do we go? I always have the least resistance to silence. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I actually would start with people who could trace their lineage back, because it's going to inevitably be a a, a limited pot. Um, and I think that that's the most important population to serve first, although I would also include indigenous people who have been treated uh, equally poorly. I think my instinct with all of this is to be over-inclusive rather than under-inclusive to like, you know, just aim at closing the racial wealth gap. And if you accidentally end up, you know, benefiting some, you know, uh, 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 immigrants or uh, other communities that happen to live in, in those areas where you want to get the gap up, that, then that's okay. Um, but I do think that um, targeting it to, uh, to, to sort of um, outcome-oriented measures, like we, we know how vast the racial wealth gap is. And 
So getting getting sort of the outcome measured properly, then then backing into it, I think uh, provides some good uh, avenues. Well, thank you all for participating. Thank you, everyone uh, who joined the webinar. And uh, I hope everyone has a uh, healthy and reflective uh, Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. Take care. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Hammer Museum. I'm Claudia Vester. I'm the Director of Public Programs, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to tonight's Hammer Forum on what would reparations look like with VP Franklin, Julianne Malveaux, and our moderator tonight is Brenda Stevenson. Before we begin, I'd like to invite you all back to the Hammer um, to see our new exhibitions of artwork by Larry Pittman, Yunhee Min, Max Hooper-Schneider, and Yasmina Medwali. Admission to our museum galleries is always free. We also have hundreds of great free public programs coming up, including Constitution Happy Hour, which is kind of like a book club, but everybody gets a free copy of the Constitution and we read the Constitution together um, with leading constitutional scholars as our guide. Um, next week, we're going to read what the Constitution says about the impeachment process. Um, on November 20th, we're screening the film Sankofa, and the director, Haile Jarima, will be here for a post-screening discussion with Brenda Stevenson, and that is the final part in our three-part series of 400 Years of Inequality. Tonight's conversation is part two of that um, series. A little more on that in a minute. Um, anyway, Haile Jarima will be here November 20th, and then on November 26th, labor leader Ai-jen Poo will be here in dialogue with artist and Black Lives Matter co-founder Alicia Garza. So we have lots of great free public programs coming up, and we hope to have you all back. If you'd like to receive reminder emails about our upcoming events, please sign up for our email list, or maybe you did that on your way in. Um, you can also find out more on our website, and you can also find recordings of almost all of our past programs on our website as well. So on to tonight's program. Um, probably you all received three by five cards on your way in. That's for the question and answer period. Um, when it comes time for Q&A, we'll send an usher around to pick up your cards and if you need extra cards or you didn't get one, you can just raise your hand and the usher will bring you a card. Um, please be sure to write very clearly so that our moderator can read them to our guest speakers. Uh, in today's forum, we're talking about reparations. The idea of making reparations for slavery has been in the news a lot lately, and I think a lot of people don't have a clear idea about how it would actually work in very practical and logistical terms. How can the United States actually go around go about trying to repair some of the damage done by slavery and other forms of racialized inequality over the past 400 years since the first captive Africans landed in Virginia in 1619. So tonight we're going to examine some of the proposals that have been made over the years about how we could address this as a nation. We have three very distinguished speakers here tonight, all of whom have worked extensively on the subject. Dr. V.P. Franklin is a distinguished professor emeritus of history and education at the University of California, Riverside, where he held the University of California presidential chair. Previously, he taught at University of Illinois, Yale, UPenn, Arizona State University, Drexel, and Columbia University, as well as Fulbright professorships at Uppsala University in Sweden and at the Universidad Autonoma de Barcelona in Spain. And he was scholar-in-residence at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in New York City. Dr. Franklin received his BA in History from Penn State 
a master's in teaching from Harvard, and a PhD in the history of education from the University of Chicago. He's the author or co-editor of 10 books, including The Education of Black Philadelphia, Black Self-Determination, A Cultural History of African-American Resistance, Cultural Capital and Black Education, African-American Communities and the Funding of Black Schooling, 1865 to the Present, and Message in the Music, Hip-Hop, History, and Pedagogy. He's published over 70 scholarly articles on African-American history and education. For 17 years, he served as the editor of the Journal of African-American History, the leading scholarly publication on African-American life and history. During his editorship, articles published in the JAAH received awards or prizes from the Association of Black Women Historians, the Southern Historical Association, the Organization of American Historians, and other professional historical organizations. Franklin is is currently completing a book on contributions to the civil rights movement by children and teenagers, which sounds completely fascinating. And he's also editing an anthology on reparatory justice called The Case for Reparations as a Mean for Social Change. Dr. Julianne Malveaux is a labor economist and author. She's the founder and president of the DC-based nonprofit Economic Education, which is focused on personal finance and economic policy education and the connection between the two. She's also the host of the University of DC's television program, Malveaux, and serves on the boards of the Economic Policy Institute, the Black Doctoral Network, and she's president of Push XL, the educational branch of the Rainbow Push Coalition. Previously, Dr. Malveaux was on faculty at San Francisco State University, and she's been a visiting professor at UC Berkeley, the New School for Social Research, the College of Notre Dame, Michigan State, and Howard University, and she was the president of Bennett College in North Carolina until 2012. And in 2017, she delivered Harvard University's W.E.B. Du Bois Lecture Series. As a writer and syndicated columnist, her work contributes to the public dialogue on issues such as race, culture, gender, and their economic impacts. And her articles regularly appear in USA Today, Black Issues in Higher Education, Ms. Magazine, Essence Magazine, and The Progressive. Her columns have appeared in numerous newspapers, including the LA Times, the Charlotte Observer, the New Orleans Tribune, the Detroit Free Press, the San Francisco Examiner, and the San Francisco Sun Reporter. She earned a bachelor's and master's degree in economics from Boston College in three years and then went on to earn a PhD in economics from MIT. She also holds honorary degrees from Benedict College, Sojourner Douglas College, and the University of the District of Columbia. She's the author of several books, including Sex, Lies, and Stereotypes, Perspectives of a Mad Economist, and Are We Better Off? Race, Obama, and Public Policy, co-written with Donna Brazile. Wall Street, Main Street, and the Side Street, A Mad Economist Takes a Stroll, co-written with Maya Angelou. Reinventing Diversity, Transforming Organizational Community to Strengthen People, Purpose, and Performance, co-written with Howard J. Ross, and Working While Black, The Black Person's Guide to Success in the White Workplace, co-written with Michelle T. Johnson. Our moderator, Dr. Brenda Stevenson, is an internationally recognized scholar of race, slavery, gender, family, and racial conflict. She's the Nickel Family Endowed Chair and Professor of History and African American Studies at UCLA. Her most significant books include Life in Black and White, Family and Community in the Slave South, The Journals of Charlotte Fortin Grimke, 
the contested murder of Latasha Harlins, Justice, Gender, and the Origins of the L.A. Riots, and What is Slavery? She was senior editor of the Encyclopedia of Black Women's History and co-author of The Underground Railroad. She's also the recipient of the Organization of American Historians Raleigh Prize for the Best Book on Race, the Association for the Study of African American Life and History Woodson Medallion, the Southern Historical Society Blassingame Award, the Ida B. Wells Award from the Women's E-News Organization, and the Gold Shield Award from UCLA. She's a past fellow of the American Academy in Berlin, the National Humanities Center, the Center for Advanced Studies in the Behavioral Sciences, the American Association of University Women, and the Andrew Mellon Foundation. And she's currently the William Andrews Clark Professor at the Center for 17th and 18th Century Studies. And she's just now completing a book on the black enslaved family. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming J.P. Franklin, Julianne Malveaux, and our moderator, Brenda Stevenson. And welcome. I want I'm to thank VP and Dr. Malvo for being with us um, this evening to talk about this very interesting and important and righteous question of reparations. All right. Um, so you know we're we're talking a lot about reparations um, this year in particular and last year perhaps, but reparations is something that we have as a people spoken about since the very beginning of our enslavement and disruption um, from our lives um, in West and West and Central Africa. So I want to begin by, first of all, asking our two experts to individually tell you all how they came to the topic of reparations, personally and professionally. And we will start with Dr. Malvo. Well, good evening, everybody. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation, and thank you for the question. Um, economics is a study of who gets what, when, where, and why. We look at factor payments in terms of factors of production, and the factors are land, labor, capital, and entrepreneurial ability. Land gets rent, labor gets wages, capital gets interest, and uh, entrepreneurial ability gets profit. Well, here's the deal. Black folks were somebody else's factor of production. We were somebody else's capital. And I think, um, I didn't know I was going to be an economist when I was um, in high school, but I was very racially um, motivated because my parents were activists. And so I, I was always studying these numbers because I was a little nerd. You wouldn't believe that, but I was. Um, and so, you know, I kept seeing the gaps. You would always see the gaps. You know, and I would say to my mom, why are these, these gaps? She said, well, maybe that's something you want to study. Well, the wealth gap has been one of the most persistent. The income gap, much less so. I mean, you, and within certain occupations, you can see a closing of the income gap. But the wealth gap has been fairly persistent. And so that's how I came to reparations. You begin to look at somebody took your wages, and basically you did not get paid. And then wealth is an accumulation, and so there were generations of non-accumulation. And so that, that's literally how I came to the 
subject intellectually. Then just in terms of the activists, who I've always been an activist, I was a baby panther, so just in terms of the um, activist work we did, the issue of reparations and justice, reparatory justice, would always come up. I never belonged to, uh, although I was very aware of, the Republic of New Africa, which actually did ask for five states as reparations. Um, but basically, it, with, through associations with folks, I'd studied it. So I was delighted when, um, and I've taught it, given lectures on it, but in 2015, was it VP? We both share um, a membership of the National African American Reparations Commission. That's part of the Institute of the Black World, which is um, led by Dr. Ron Daniels. And both of us serve on the commission and have had the opportunity through the commission to really do a lot of education. We've been around the country doing town hall meetings uh, and to really lift the, the issue up. I had the privilege of set, testifying before Congress on Juneteenth uh, when Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee um, held uh, hearings on H.R. 40. And H.R. 40 is the legislation that would um, create a commission to study reparations and suggest a remedy. So H.R. 40 is not give everybody a check. H.R. 40 is how do we study this and what kind of remedy should there be. Congressman John Conyers introduced H.R. 40 in 1989 for the first time. He's a friend and associate, and so through that legislation, I'd also been involved in the reparations movement. One of the tragedies about that movement is the, the pace of recognition, so that the entire Congressional Black Caucus in 1989 did not sign on as co-sponsors. Um, and so it's, it's taken a while, and it's taken some momentum. I think at one point there were only 20 um, congressional co foundation members and one white guy, white guy from Ohio, and that was about it. But every year he got more and more and more. And so now not only do we have the um, H.R. 40, as now introduced by Sheila Jackson Lee, but also a companion bill in the Senate that was introduced by uh, Senator Cory Booker. So the reparations issue, as an economist, is one, to me it's one of the most important issues to look at in terms of what black people gave to this country. Mm -hmm. And because we don't pay attention to that. You would not have a bond market. If you, there are so many things you would not have if black folks had not been here. And so it's really very significant to look at that and to understand what its implications are. Thank you very much. And Dr. Franklin, I'm going to call you Dr. Franklin, although I usually call you VP, but you're my friend, so I, uh, I feel comfortable doing that. But I want the audience to know that you are Dr. Franklin. So could you answer the question, please? Yeah, um, I was uh, uh, agreed to uh, become the editor of the Journal of, Af of, Journal of Negro History then uh, in 2001. And 2001 saw the publication of Randall Robinson's The Debt, mm -hmm. what, what America o Owes Blacks. That was, it came out in 2001. And it was very, very uh, popular, a bestseller and that kind of thing. And, uh, and so I became the editor of the journal, but I changed it from the Journal of Negro History to the Journal of African American History. I said, well, it's, we've been Negroes long enough. And so, <laughs> and so, uh, and so, uh, so that book had just come out. Okay, so that, so I then made sure that that book was reviewed uh, in the journal. And then the next, uh, several of those anthologies came out, mm 
on reparations. And one was called Who Should Pay, with, that was edited by uh, Raymond uh, Winbush. And these anthologies came out, but then in 2005, you had Mary Frances Berry's My Face is Black is True, uh, Callie House, and the ex-slave reparations movement. So that, so that Mary Frances Berry book came out. And we did not, as, as, as African-American historians, we did not know as much about this reparations movement, this movement to, ha to have pensions for formerly aged now, formerly enslaved African-Americans that began, the, 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 the campaign began in the, 19, in the 1890s and then in the early decades of the 20th century. And so this book came out, and we, you know, we didn't know how large it was. It's, you know, 90, 100,000 people, uh, black people signing up to support this movement. And we didn't know that much about it before Mary's book came out. Mm -hmm. And so I then said, okay, well, we're going to have a book forum on this, and, you know, because this is so important. So in, uh, in the book came out in 2005. And I had this book forum in the Journal of African American History that you can look up if you want to uh, in the uh, spring, in the summer of 2006, 2006, so that we had scholars uh, who participated in various panels and stuff, uh, contributed articles discussing how important this new information about how the, how these formerly enslaved people were. Uh, you know, whatever little funds that they had, that they would, they were willing to, to uh, join this movement in hopes of getting legislation mm -hmm. passed by the federal government in order to provide these pensions for these formerly enslaved people. Uh, and you have to keep in mind that there were white Southerners who were supportive of this campaign and this movement. And they were the ones that was actually these white senators that actually introduced this legislation into the Congress in the early, in the 1890s, at the end of the 1890s and in early two, uh, uh, 1900s. And so, and he said, well, white Southerners were interested in reparations for formerly enslaved African Americans. Well, they knew where that money was going to end up. <laughs> where it was going, you know, it was going to come through them, the to white southerners, and that they would, you know, they would be able to. So they, so you had these white southerners that were, um, that were interested in it. So and Mary documents all of this in her book, My Face is Black is True, and uh, and so the uh, movement was much larger and much more important than we thought. And so I, so I had this so this forum, I had this forum published in the journal. So that, so I said, well, these reparations now is really an important issue. And so you have discussions of reparations in various other forums around the world, et cetera. And then we had the election of Barack Obama <laughs> in 2008, you know, during that horrible recession. And, um, and, and, and we were supposed to have this post-racial society. Remember that post? <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember that. Post-racial. Now that we have this black president, this oh, is post-racial. And I said, no, that's not. <laughs> I said, that's not reality. I said, they're, they're saying this, but that's not the reality of the situation. And I said, and, 
And so I decided, I wanted to address, the, one of the people who addressed it, so I issued a call for papers for a special issue of the Journal of African American History on reparations. Because I said that, and, and, the, and, the, the, and in introducing the call for papers, the title of the commentary uh, that, that, I, that I used was The Election of Barack Obama, colon, The Debt Has Not Been Paid. <laughs> and the book, you know, that was a play on the book, The Debt. You know? <laughs> so, and, and I had The Debt Has Not Been Paid. And so, and, and so I said, you know, we need to, uh, uh, to, to try to um, pursue this as a topic because certain, uh, there were a number of scholars and stuff writing about it, and it was within the context of the truth and reconciliation movement in South Africa at the same time. You have to, and, so, and so you had, it was for uh, reparations, restitution, restoration, you know, and so you had that, that activity going on at the same time. And I said, well, we've had reparations, you know, uh, going on here for, uh, you know, almost 100 years and stuff, and so that we need to update this. The scholarly community needs to update this. And the first person to, when I issued the call for papers, the first person to respond was uh, Dr. Ronald W. Walters. Mm -hmm. Dr. Ronald W. Walters, who was one who's a distinguished scholar and social activist. He had an institute at the University of Maryland on black on leadership. But he had been a he was one of the people that founded helped founded the uh, the, the Congressional Black Caucus. He had served as the uh, at the camp, one of the campaign managers when Jesse Jackson ran for president in 1984 and 1988. But he was a scholar, and he had written like 10 books or something at that time. And his latest book had come out in 2008. Mm -hmm. so, this, so, so remember, I'm, so which dealt with the, the Truth and Reconciliation uh, uh, program in South Africa and whether or not you know, people were actually going to bring about some significant economic change there and then apply what about reparations in the United States. So his book, the, the, uh, on, on racial, the, racial reconciliation, the price of racial reconciliation is the title. He was the first person to sign, to send in a manuscript, <laughs> you know, for the special issue. And then we got, got the other manuscript came in and stuff and over the years and stuff and the, the special issue was finally came out in 2012 but Dr. Ron Walters had passed away in 2010, and so uh, and so what I did was he's the article is in there, but he the special issue was dedicated. He, that's him on the cover, and it was dedicated to him. Uh, and so that was what that so so that was uh, and that dealt with re reparations in the United States. And one of the what was really interesting was that in the special issue, we included another large organization on reparations that was seeking reparations for formerly enslaved African-Americans in the early 20th century as well. And, and so it was called uh, the National Liberty Society, and they were, and it was, so this was another large organization that was trying to push reparations for African-Americans. And so that was, so that special issue came out in 2012, and then we had all of the uh, all of the movement in terms of the CARICOM, the nations right. in, in uh, the Caribbean, 
creating the Caribbean's, the CARICOM Reparations Commission and, you know, and the 10-point program that the CARICOM nations came up with with how they would demand the reparations from the formerly, former colonial powers and, that, and what they would do with this. And we, uh, and, and we had uh, organizations created in the United States to sort of work with them, et cetera. And then there was an international conference on reparations held at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And this conference dealt with reparations movements around, around the world. And so, uh, I, you know, I, I went to, the, to the, deliver the paper at this conference and worked with the conveners of that conference to uh, do a special issue on reparations movements internationally. And so it contains an article on Jamaica. It contains an article on reparations movement in the U.S. Virgin Islands. It has an article on reparations movement in Europe. And so, and, and, and then this was, some of them, articles coming out of that conference at the University of Edinburgh, but we had a call for papers and so it was broadened beyond them. And so, and so I've been documenting this, you know, this reparation movement. So it's from 2000, 2002 when the review of the debt was published, all the way up to winter, spring 2018, when the international, the article on the international reparations movement was published in the Journal of African American History. And I have a copy of, uh, of that special issue as well. Okay, so that's me. Well, thank you. Thank you very I much. I just jump in for a quick second to share a story with y'all since VP brought up President Obama. Um, I interviewed him in 2004 mm -hmm. at the Democratic Convention. Um, it was a challenging interview to get, but if white people have six degrees of separation, black people have three. So, and the first thing you do when you see black people, you know so-and-so, you know so-and-so. So anyway, I knew Charles Ogletree, who's a friend and was very influential in the reparations movement. Um, he was a um, professor at Harvard Law, and he basically, I called him, I said, Tree, I need to talk to President Obama. He said, I, well, he wasn't president, right. Senator, Senator Obama. Mm -hmm. He said, I'll hook you up. So I was working for Willie Gary, who had a television station, MBC, Metropolitan Broadcasting Network, and I was covering the Democratic Convention and the Republican Convention for him. So I had a big old suite. We got Senator Obama into the big old suite uh, with his producers and my producers and no, his, his colleagues, my producers. Anyway, long story short, we're having a great conversation. We spent, they told me, you only have 20 minutes. I think I had that man for almost an hour. Wow. And then what had happened was somehow I asked him, because he was a student of um, both Derrick Bell, mm -hmm. his face is at the bottom of the well, mm -hmm. and of Charles Ogletree. So I said, well, since you're basically a student of these two folks, what do you think about reparations? This was 2004. My man said, turn that camera off. <laughs> <laughs> and his, his little aide jumped up. He said, you didn't say you were going to ask this question? <laughs> but I hadn't cleared any of my questions. They didn't ask for any of the questions. So that, I, I tell the story only because... It has taken a lot of people a long time to get to reparations. And Barack Obama has always had to kind of shilly-shally between uh, being a black man and being the president 
being a black man, but also having a, a white grandma. Mm-hmm. So he, so his guy guarded response to reparations, I don't think he'd have today. But I think in 2004, you're thinking about running for president. No, you do not want people to think that you want reparations. <laughs> Thank you for that story. <laughs> well, you know, I want you all to talk a little bit about reparations historically in the country. Not reparations necessarily for people of African descent, but for other peoples um, in the country who have had reparations. I mean, we know, for example, after the American Revolution and after the War of 1812, slaveholders went and sought reparations for their quote-unquote lost property, who were chattel slaves at the time. You know, and so we see that Britain has re- returned uh, what was then, I believe, $20 million to slaveholders in the Caribbean in 1833, which is now something like $16 billion or, or yeah, more. Yeah. Uh, yeah, at least. Um, and so France also compensated slaveholders, and Lincoln wanted to compensate slaveholders. He wanted, if he hadn't been killed, um, slaveholders would have received a tremendous amount of money from the very small U.S. Treasury at the time. Um, and so we know reparations occurred around slavery, okay? It's, but enslaved peoples never received any of that funding at all. Uh, so if you all could talk moving forward from that point about reparations that other groups have received in the United States, because oftentimes people will say, I've never heard of anyone getting reparations before. What is this? <laughs> you know, but it's something that, as I said, from the Revolutionary War forward, yes. we have been doing um, in this country. So could you all talk a little bit more about, you know, that, uh, whoever wants to start? Yeah, well, well one of the... Uh one of the major groups that is associated with reparation is the uh, NCOBRA, with the, the National African American Coalition, National Coalition for Reparations of Black Americans. Black American, NCOBRA. And NCOBRA was founded in 1988, and it was founded as a direct result of the reparations that Japanese Americans had received. That is, they had paid. That is, Japanese Americans who had been uh, taken from their homes interned. and interned in those concentration camps in during uh, World War II, uh, they uh, they had applied for payment for reparations payment, et cetera, and uh, and they and that legislation finally passed, mm-hmm. and it passed in 1988, 1987. 1987 is when the Japanese Americans got, got reparations payment from the federal government. And so NCOBRA was formed in 1988, and they worked with Congressman John Conyers on the bill mm-hmm. on H.R. 40, the original reparations bill for African Americans in the United States. And so, and so that there's, a, there's a direct link between the Japanese Americans gaining reparations from the, uh, from the United States government and the actual legislation that was introduced uh, by uh, Congressman Conyers in 1989. So that's, that's a, one group. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad you mentioned the Japanese, and we don't have to dwell on that, but that is an example of the United States paying people reparations. But I'm also glad you mentioned uh, President Lincoln in the context of enslavement ended in Washington, D.C. before it ended in right. the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people who had enslaved um, people were paid 
Right. They will pay $300. Mm-hmm. Um, the National Council of Negro Women's Headquarters is on 633 Pennsylvania Avenue, and it is at the site of a slave market. Right. So it's just very interesting to make those mm-hmm. connections between, between people who were paid. I mean, people who were paid. Uh, the church, uh, General Sherman had agreed that enslaved people should get 40 acres of the mule. That's why H.R. 40 is named H.R. 40. Mm-hmm. 40 acres, I keep the mule. But um, <laughs> but in any case, um, when we when we look at what what happened, President Lincoln just basically compensated. Sherman said that he would compensate with the forty acres of the mule. But President the President Johnson, who succeeded Lincoln, Andrew. was a dyed in the wool racist, and he did not believe that black people should get anything. And so basically, all of that was suspended. Mm-hmm. Many of the original owners, the land was supposed to come from the original owners, right. and also there was some unclaimed land. And that that just did not happen. At the same time, at the, in 1863, the Homestead Act was passed. Mm-hmm. And I called it the Go West Young Man Act because we had all this land in the western part, really the middle of the country, and European immigrants were encouraged to go west and to claim land. This land is also land that could have been uh, settled on enslaved people. Millions of acres were given away, much of them... Native American people's land, right. which we all, all often of forget, which we often forget about. <laughs> all of uh, it was Native American. About ten percent of the current land mass of this country was essentially given to European immigrants, the descendants of whom are now the very ones who do not believe in reparations. Mm-hmm. Just for the record. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. Um, I want to ask a question that I think a lot of people ask. What exactly are reparations? What would they look like? Some people, um, I, I remember, some people have been saying, a few people have been saying, on their GoFundMe page, fund me <laughs> as a form of reparation. Okay? And you've seen it. You know what I'm talking about. All right. Other people have been saying things like, well, affirmative action was reparation. Certain people have said, you know, scholarships are a form of reparation. So let's hear what your take is. What are reparations and what are not reparations. And please take the liberty to fold in your own um, ideas about what you would like to see as a reparatory um, process. Yeah, well, the, uh, if you look at, have been following some of this on, on, uh, on the, in the news and in papers and stuff, you may know that several institutions have, have said that they will, are going to, uh, to create small reparations funds. Princeton Theological Seminary, uh, uh, Virginia Theological Seminary, uh, they said that they were going to put aside parts of their money or raise money, et cetera, to create these little funds to, uh, because we can trace directly the uh, funds at various points in time, over time, that those institutions those institutions received either from slavery or from the slave trade, you know, gifts from the slave trade. The most prominent example, of course, is Georgetown Mm -hmm. University and the uh, campaign of descendants of formerly enslaved people who were sold down the river, literally, uh, to help pay off a debt that was owed by Georgetown University, and the and 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 this went back and forth. Uh, the G two two seventy two G U 
272 was one of the groups that was created by the uh, descendants of those enslaved people who had been sold to support Georgetown University. And so the descendants, the descendants got, came together and were beginning to make, this, make kind of reparations demands on, the, um, on Georgetown. Uh, I attended some of these meetings. For example, you had the, you know, the Jesuit institution. And the Jesuits' uh, leaders would come and met when I was with the descendants there in Louisiana. Because this is Louisiana. I'm living in New Orleans, and this is Louisiana. And, these, and, and they are in some of the poorest parishes in Louisiana. And Louisiana is below Mississippi in so many areas. And so these were actually very, very uh, people in need who could be helped. You know, their children, et cetera, could be helped, you know, if, you know, if some kind of reparations plan was created. Uh, and, and so we had these meetings in, in New Orleans and other places with these representatives of the Jesuit order. And, uh, you know, so maybe we'll do something, you know, uh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk about it, you know, and see what we can do and stuff. And, and, I, and as some of you may have, have known that uh, the students, the students at, at Georgetown University, uh, uh, Decided that they would, they held a referendum among themselves and said that they would, that they wanted part of their student fees to go toward a fund that would be used for, uh, uh, for, rep for a reparations fund. Uh, that would be used, now keep in mind that basically this is educational funds. This is funds for scholarships. You know, uh, for the and see the problem was they said, okay, well we'll give you scholarships to uh, Georgetown, give you you know the you know and they said, well what if the student they don't want to go to Georgetown? What if they want to go to another school? I said that's not gonna that kind of, uh, of of plan would not work. But in any case, the students held the referendum and agreed that they would that they would take more of their money. Uh, pay to pay into this reparations fund out of their student fees. Well, they added on to the student fees, so they actually taxed themselves. Taxed themselves. Thirty-seven dollars right. per semester. Right. For the fund. Yes, and um, and but the latest information is that the uh, the uh, university has decided that well, no, what we'll do is that we will the students don't we're not going to. Uh, have the students pay this. What we're going to do is we're going to raise money from our alumni and philanthropists and donors and things to provide $400,000 a year uh, to pr provide scholarships and, uh, and educational funding uh, for the descendants of the 272 uh, African enslaved African Americans who were sold to benefit Georgetown, and, and so the, so the question for me was, I said, but weren't they working at Georgetown before they were sold down the river? I mean, I mean it was. I said, and what about the other ones who were not sold down the river? I mean, it's it's, it's a, you know it's a, it's very selective, you know, uh, somewhat uh, small, but they but they but they were going back and forth on this. But the point. That I that I want to make is that these individual small funds for reparations for people or institutions that actually 
gained support, funding from uh, slavery and the slave trading and, and individual funds, you know, to, to do something, this was not new. This had been done in the in, in 1970s, in the early 1970s, as a result of the issuing of the Black Manifesto. Mm -hmm. The Black Manifesto was issued in, in May of 1969, and it was a demand of, and it, it, it had like $500 million for reparations for formerly enslaved people, but they targeted the churches the churches and religious denominations that benefited from slavery and slave and slave trade, and and it was very it became very famous uh, incident because James Foreman was, and and the other members in the group was was called the National Black uh, Economic Development Conference, NBDC, and James Foreman he would go into these religious into these religious services and read the the Black Manifesto. And, uh, and demand these reparations from these, from these various churches. And they said, oh, no, well, we've got to do that. We're going to do other stuff. And so, and then he would make presentations at denominational conferences and all of this, and they, oh, no, we're not going to do this. But what happened was the black caucuses within the Presbyterian church, within the Episcopal church, within the Methodist Church, mm -hmm. with, and several other Protestant religious denominations, they said, well, we don't like the way that he presented this to us, you know, demanding these, coming into the church and demanding these reparations and stuff. But what, but, and, and, and the goal was to try to boost black economic development. And so what happened was that the individual denominations, each of the, and, and, and as a historian, I'm able to, you know, they went in, I published this, you know, where they actually, we went in and looked at the records of these various, of these various denominations, these various churches, and the Presbyterian Church, the, uh, the uh, Congregationalist Church, the Episcopal Church, what they did was they, they uh, allowed, they budgeted money in the early 1970s for reparations funds that would go to the black caucus within that denomination, okay? So that, so that if there's a black Presbyterian caucus, they, uh, they uh, allotted $200,000 for black economic development uh, in, through the Presbyterian church, the Episcopal church, and, and, and the, uh, these small reparations funds mm -hmm were used to assist the development of black economic pro projects like uh, cooperatives mm -hmm. uh, for uh, housing developments, housing programs, and so, so these, and that were then, and the funds were not, did not go to Foreman and the NBDC, it went to the, and, they, and so, they, so that they did get these reparations, these reparations, but they went to the black caucuses within these religious denominations. So we had, so you had examples in the past mm -hmm. of small reparations funds, similar to what uh, the Princeton Theological Seminary, you know, creating a small fund that was then used for a project, a, a project that, that, that those blacks within that religious denomination wanted to support. 
so that so we had so 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 we have that kind of example. Mm-hmm. Now you know the money that came from the churches, and I'm glad you mentioned the United Church of Christ gave a million dollars to establish the Black Economic Research Center in Harlem. Um, That was my first job, (laughs) summer of 1972, actually. But the center opened, I think, about 1969. A man named Robert S. Brown was the leader of that. And um, a number of African-American economists had their first jobs and first opportunities there. I want to deal with your question in a different way. VP is the historian. I'm the economist. So (laughs) I I want to take a slightly different approach to this. Um, Because people always say, how much is it going to be? How many, you know, how, right now, even in the reparations movement, there is some dissent on who gets the reparations, uh, whether there's this group called ADOS. I don't think much of them because they gave me a death threat, but that's another story. Uh, I'm like, yeah, bring it. but in any case, um, they believe in individual checks. Others have looked at other things. I'm going to go through what we did with um, NARC in terms of what our requests are. But the way that I see this is that you both have to talk about compensating individuals, but you also have to talk about repairing communities. What happened is more important than one individual losing. We can go back and look at examples of people having lost. Tulsa, Oklahoma, 1921, uh, Black Wall Street. Or Wilmington, um, North Carolina, 1898, where basically they said the river ran red, so many black people were killed. So we can go back and point to individuals. In fact, there's a a film called Wilmington on Fire, which I highly recommend. Mm -hmm. It's really, really good. Mm -hmm. And actually some of the descendants of the victims from Wilmington, they talk about Mm -hmm. what their parents or grandparents, et cetera, lost. So, you know, we can look at individuals. But we also have to look at communities. One of the things that I'm doing now, I'm working on something for VP, um, <laughs> taking me forever, but it, 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 because lynching, it, if you study lynching, it will literally kind of drive you nuts. Right. My therapist actually told me to stop. She said, she said, you can't, I mean, because I start, someone will say something to me, and I start melting down and telling them about these lynchings. But what lynchings did is they frightened and intimidated a community. Mm-hmm. And there was an economic a component to lynching. The first lynching that Ida B. Wells documented was of a, a guy named Tommy Wells. He was a postman in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, and um, he started a grocery store. He started the grocery store, the People's Grocery, because there was a white man who had a store. The store was unruly. They drank liquor in there. He had 10 citations for liquor. Mm-hmm. Um, black women were uncomfortable going there because they had gambling and da-da-da. So Tommy and two of his friends started a store. Well, economic competition was threatening to this man. And so they were angry that they had the store, but rather than um, deal with it head on, when two little boys got into a fight over some marbles, the white men from the other store went to the people's grocery with guns. And they were going to shoot it up, but brothers were not having that. And so basically, uh, a melee ensued. The sheriff came back, and um, three men were arrested and then lynched. Uh, Tommy Wells was the father of Ida B. Wells' goddaughter, and so that was a story there. But all, many of these lynching stories have a property component. And that's, so, so when you talk about reparations, you're not just talking about and basically reimbursing somebody for what they lost, but you're also talking, what is the impact 
of this on a community? How is a community, basically, because Ida B. Wells said lynching is a form of intimidation. And that's literally what it was. There was a man in Florida, he owned orange groves, and he wanted to vote. And um, white man turned him away. He went back and was, I guess he was flippant. Because understanding what lynching did is it beat people down. So that people were afraid to talk back. Some people were killed because they made eye contact. A man was lynched because he owned an automobile. Um, there, there are just so many stories. In any case, the, the point being, lynching was a way of economic extraction. and we.